Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Life is unfair. I'm sure that we've all felt that sentiment a time or two, and perhaps even more recently, if you have a gone to purchase gas at the gas pump and notice the prices. But all kidding aside, where do we get this idea or this sense of fairness from in the first place? Like, if there's a standard of fairness, where are we deriving the comparison of the situation and circumstances in life that we find ourselves in, that we would classify them as unfair? Well, if you haven't guessed by now, or if you haven't read from the title, today's episode is going to be on Is There objective morality or is all morality relative? And I don't want to waste any time in getting into this because this is a huge discussion and it's really complex and spoiler alert, we're probably not going to solve it in 20 minutes. And this isn't a precursor or prelude to some part two of this episode. This is just facing the reality that this is a very complex issue. But nevertheless, it's probably very important for us to talk about, especially in the lens of religious viewpoint and particularly the Christian viewpoint. Because sometimes life seems relatively moral, and sometimes life seems absolutely moral. And by that, I don't mean that everything going on around you is moral. I just mean that morals are relative or morals are absolute. And really, the conclusion that we're probably going to come to, and let me rephrase that. I don't want to use the word conclusion, but it's probably the best word I have right now to describe where we're going. But where we're going to ease out of this conversation is probably somewhere in the middle, probably a mixture of the two. Because on the one hand, there are morals that are absolute, and on the other hand, there are morals that are relative. And so, I mean, really, before we get into it, we should probably define what we mean by moral, morality. Often, this word is used synonymously with the word ethics, but I want to separate the two, just for sake of clarification of diction. Ethics is the measurement of how moral or immoral an action or a person is. But morality can simply be defined as what ought to be. To put it in religious terms, it's the shalls and shall nots. And this is an important distinction to make because truth is what is and reality is what ought. Right? So we can kind of separate these two then in our minds. And of course, all Wonderful philosophy students will (laughs) hearken back to maybe David Hume or Soren Kierkegaard. And as soon as I start to use these phrases is and ought, you know, because you're a good philosophy student, that from reading those great philosophers of the 1800s, you can't derive an ought from an is, right? And that's something that we kind of take for granted in the religious sphere of things. And that's really the basis of the argument for absolute morality, right? That stands in contrast to the basis of the argument of one of the kinds of relative morality, which is that you can't derive an ought from it is, right? So you, you, you can't analyze the world scientifically. You can't look out into nature and try to get in touch with the transcendent aspects of that nature and derive moral code from what's observed. And so maybe this is just our good segue into absolute morality. And then I promise we will give relative morality It's just time in this podcast. But if we're jumping into absolute morality, absolute morality 
separates itself into two different kinds of law theory, and that's natural and positive law theory. Natural law being those self-evident truths of law and morality. And I say it that way on purpose because if you're an American citizen, when I say self-evident, perhaps you think back to the Constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, right? And this is when we get into absolute morality, it's not like absolute moral theory says that every aspect of morality is absolute, but it says that there are some aspects of morality that are absolute. And those aspects of morality that we hold to be absolute are called natural law. You see, the natural law is that created equal. The natural law is that cold-blooded murder is wrong. The natural law is that lying is wrong. And you know, there's some decent evidence to absolute moral theory stacked in its favor. For example, when we get to relative morality, we're going to talk about how no two cultures have all the same moral codes within them, and that we haven't had that throughout history, right? So you, you go to a different culture or a different time in the world, and you're going to see the moral code transforms and shifts. And well, fair enough, it does. But absolute morality proponents would argue that though it shifts, it doesn't shift that drastically. For example, if you go back a thousand years in history, perhaps stealing someone's credit card online wasn't morally wrong because there wasn't a credit card and there wasn't an online, but committing treason was wrong. And as I just mentioned, murdering someone in cold blood was wrong and lying was wrong and stealing someone's wife or husband was wrong. And so this then to the absolute moral theory becomes a piece of evidence. Because it's not to say that if there's absolute morality, everyone should know what the absolute morality is. Absolute morality doesn't translate one-to-one -to, -one to innate morality. Now, we all do have a conscience, and there are some innate moral codes within us, but that's probably a discussion for a different day, because we're not talking individually right now. We're talking really philosophically on a big picture of, of what morality is. But this is very important to understanding absolute moral theory in that it isn't always obvious what the absolute moral laws are. However, more often than not, it's the case that it's obvious when they're broken. And I think the biggest example of this, uh, the biggest recent example of this in history is the Nuremberg trials, where the Nazi war criminals and generals were tried at Nuremberg for their, and I quote, in the trial, they were, they were tried for their crimes against humanity. And this is a strong piece of evidence for absolute moral theory. And that's because if we take away absolute morality and say that morality is all relative, what we have to assume then is that each culture is able to judge its own morality for itself. So in other words, there's nothing except for positive law. So we just define natural law. So let's define positive law. And then positive law is the law of the land is the easiest way to think about it. Positive law theory asserts that laws are created within a culture specific to the culture in order to best govern, protect, and ensure the prosperity of that culture. Now, positive law and natural law theory aren't opposed, so please don't get that image in your mind that they're opposed. They actually work together, and you can't have one without the other. And I'll explain that here in a second. But if all morality is relative, then all we have is positive law, and we have no natural law. And vice versa, right? If all morality is absolute, then all we have is natural law and we don't have positive law. And again, that's why I think it, it's probably going to make some sense to come somewhere in the middle. 
Because as the trials at Nuremberg show us, we have to have natural law. We have to be able to charge people with crimes against humanity because if all we have is positive law, then all we have is 1920s, 1930s Germany behaving within their cultural and geographical borders perfectly within their positive law, right? Are you following me on this? Because if, if a culture says, hey, we say that it is good to exterminate an entire race of people, and not just like quickly and easily, but like brutally and make them starve and put them in gas chambers and torture them and then also perform horrendous inhumane. <laughs> there's, there's that word again, inhumane, assuming uh, that there is an absolute morality, right? But anyway, horrendous inhumane uh, experiments on them medically. We're, we're 1930s Germany and we say, yeah, that's, that's good. That is good. That fits within the moral code of all of our culture and country. Well, <laughs> if all morality is relative, who are we to judge them? That's heavy, right? <laughs> like, man, I'm I'm I, I prepared to say this before I recorded it, but even just saying it out loud, I'm like, that's heavy. Luckily, that's not how history went down, and the world felt like they could judge Nazi Germany because there was a natural law that the World Council agreed on at the trial of Nuremberg, and those horrible, horrible men were condemned for their crimes, their crimes against humanity, their crimes against an absolute moral code that says life has to be protected, that says life is valuable. And, and that resonates with us, right? Because we have, we have a sense of justice. We have a sense of fairness. And that's why I started off the episode by saying life is not fair. We know that. We have a sense of it. And we, we long for it. We long for justice, right? Like when someone commits a horrible, horrible crime, or if we take it back personally, if someone murders someone in your family, or, and God forbid, rapes someone in your family. You don't want to just turn and say, well, their moral code said that all of that was okay. So who am I to judge them? No, you want freaking justice, right? I don't even know you and I want justice if that happens to you. And that desire is deep down in all of us. And so, okay, maybe that's all it is though. Maybe that's all it is, is just a desire deep down in all of us for there to be an absolute moral code, and therefore we project an absolute moral code onto the world, and enough of us project the same moral code that, relatively speaking, we've developed a sense of morality that can somewhat be universally applied. Thus enter relative moral theory. So let's talk about it. There's no denying that different cultures have different moral codes that they live by, that if you do something in the United States of America, it doesn't necessarily mean it correlates to proper moral code in, say, a European country, or, say, an African country, or an Asian country, or a South American country. Though, again, I really wouldn't test this out by <laughs> committing murder or theft or, or some of the uh, crimes that are very universally seen as wrong. But we can acknowledge that cultures are different and that cultures come to their own moral and, and judicial conclusions on their own. 
And and for that matter, even on a bigger scale, systems of government are different. People come to different conclusions on on how the culture should be run as a whole, right? Whether it should be a capitalist system, a communist system, a socialist system, a socialist republic, right? A a a, a, a monarchy, an oligarchy. There's there's so many different things, and I don't want to get into which one is right or wrong, but. Each culture has thus far decided for itself which one is the moral code that they're going to lay over the land. And so it's no doubt then that positive law theory holds. And, and, and again, even if we hold an absolute moral uh, position, positive law theory must hold. So all that states the obvious then. The question we're after with moral relativity is, is it the case that we all just simply long for absolute morality so that we can project our morality onto others as an evolutionary byproduct of survival, right? Because that that's fair, right? Like we all, we all evolved, given the theory, I don't want to get into the evolution debate here, but we all evolved with the sense that, hey, we want to survive. And whether you believe in evolution or not, we all have a sense of, hey, I want to survive. And so if we take an analytical look at the world and say, okay, what increases my chances of survival in the world? Well, one of the biggest variables to control is tribes, right? If, if you can prevent the opposing tribe to your tribe from coming in, killing you, and taking all of your goods, well, that actually increases your chances of survival quite a bit. And so how do you do that? Well, you can be stronger than them. You can have more members than them. Or you can try to superimpose upon all of humanity a moral code. But now you're thinking, wait, 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 hold on a second. How do we know humans wrote that moral code? Because all of that actually makes a ton of sense. And even if we were to believe in theistic evolution, which, and I think we talked about this in our uh, evolution episode a while back. So if, if you want to go deeper on that discussion, I recommend going back to that. But even if we subscribe to theistic evolution, the scenario I just played out still makes sense for there being an absolute moral code and still makes sense for God being the one to write the moral code because God would be the one then looking down from eternity into time and space and earth and superimpose a natural moral code saying, do not kill your neighbor. And so that still works, but which one makes more sense? Well, we have to talk about good and evil a little bit here, because everything I've said thus far is possible. And actually, given where we have come, everything I've said so far is probable. But is it plausible, right? These are the, the three P tests of apologetics within Christianity that we always run. Possible, probable, plausible, right? Possible, it can happen. Probable, given the scenarios I just set up, it actually is probable to happen. There's a likely occurrence of it happening and plausible. Does it actually work and pass the logic test? Well, they both do until we factor in good and evil. And again, I'm not claiming to be an expert on any of this stuff. So if you guys got other objections or questions, please write in. As you always do, we can talk about it or maybe I'll even make another episode about it. But this was C.S. Lewis's problem. Right? When C.S. Lewis was an atheist, this was the thing that made him question all of his reality, and ultimately he ended up coming to faith. And he talks about it in several of his books, and I think there's even some radio recordings of him you can look up on YouTube. But it's the problem of evil. And it's not just evil like Nazi Germany. It's evil like cancer. It's evil like tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes. It's evil like dictators, regimes that murder by the millions. 
if there's no absolute moral code, and, and it doesn't have to be a complex moral code either, and that's the thing that I think we can conclude is that there's probably an absolute moral code, and it's probably simple, and then it's up to us to derive the complexity of the moral code and factor it into our daily lives. But if there is no absolute moral code and there's no trace of it, then everything you look out at the world and say it's good doesn't actually mean good, right? Because good means following the moral code, and evil means against the moral code, right? So if the moral code in it says that all humans are created equal and have a, have a transcendent value, you could even say imago Dei, which is Latin for made in the image of God, which would then transcend the value of human life over the value of any other life or any other thing in the world, right? So if, if, if that's the moral code, and maybe there's more, and I'm not saying there's not more, but if that's a part of the moral code, that human life has a value that can't be taken away, and it's a self-evident God-given value, and whatever's good then honors the value, and whatever's bad betrays the value, well, then that works. And that properly fits into the definition of good and bad. But if there is no moral code, if every single aspect of morality, including the value of human life, is relative, then what's good is simply what pleases me, and what's bad is simply what displeases me. Meaning then that there's actually no such thing as good and bad, or good and evil. Meaning that you have no leg to stand on when you say life is unfair. Meaning that when cancer takes your loved one away, it displeases you, but it's not bad. When you turn on a news story about a school shooting, it displeases you, but it's not actually evil. And that, man, that, that drove C.S. Lewis crazy, right? Because it's like, how can you live like that? How can you live with that as, as, as a basis and, and, a, and a premise for morality and for life? And so C.S. Lewis looked at evolutionary theory and he said, no, hold on a second. If all of my desires that I have are for my benefit of survival and I have a desire there that can't be met alone in this world, it must mean that I have a desire for another world, right? And, and so on that same that same line of thought, if you have a desire for, for a, a, a system that recognizes certain things as good and certain things as evil, and that system doesn't exist and isn't there, and it never has, and it never will, why the heck do you have that desire? Does it mean that your desire is like your appendix? <laughs> it does nothing for you? Or does it mean that the system might just be there after all? I don't know. There's no proof of it. Just like, and I hope to get more into this conversation again this year, but just like there's no proof for the existence of God, but there's also no proof the contrary. And just because there's no proof of it doesn't mean it's not there, just like God, right? Just because there's no proof of God doesn't mean that there isn't a God, because there's also no proof that there isn't a God. And so it's got to pass the plausibility test, right? We, we, like, like, we've got to ask, okay, it's possible, it's probable, but is it plausible? And I think moral relativity passes the possible and the probable test, but doesn't pass the plausibility test. And I think in absolute moral theory passes all three. At least that's my conclusion right now. Because again, I don't know everything about morality, and I do not claim to. But I do know it sure does work well for us to live like absolute moral theory is true. For us to hold other people accountable, especially for crimes against humanity. But let me know what you think. As always, feel free to write in. Feel free to follow the show on Instagram. 
Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen to and send an episode or two to your friends. It's always such an honor and such a compliment when you guys do that. And as always, thank you so much for listening and I hope you've enjoyed the show.